welcome to this ethical gardeners question time. This session will explore your ethical gardening dilemmas whilst inspiring new ideas for cultivating healthy plants and ethics in your garden or backyard. Ellen Marie is going to be hosting this session and all panelists will introduce themselves. So I'm going to hand over to Ellen Marie. Thank you, Anna. Thanks everyone for joining in today as well on this um, Ethical Con Consumers Week 2020. How exciting. I, I know that there's loads of stuff going on um, to make us think about our decisions and choices that we make throughout life. And of course, this one is to be with gardening and plants in my favourite topic. <laughs> so we, our panellists today are uh, Jenny. Say hello to Jenny. Jenny, say hello to everybody. Your microphone's off. Hi, hi everyone. <laughs> there's Jenny. <laughs> and uh, there's Tony, Tony Martin there as well. Hi, Tony. Hi, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Margie Lennartson Turner there too. Hello there. Look, lovely smiley panellists today. So don't be scared to ask your questions of us and we will do our very best to answer them. Um, and in the run up to this, um, we've been sent some questions to get started. But as Anna said, if you've got any questions or comments that you'd like to make, on the way through this web webinar and please add them into the chat and we'll keep an eye on that. So I think we should just get started answering your uh, gardening questions and the first question is from John and Dawn who have asked is there a place for green manure in a no dig garden? Who is a no dig gardener from us panellists? I can have a I can have a go at that if, if you want right. to. Um, Yes, there, there definitely is a, a place for green manures in, in, in no-dig gardens, I, I believe. Um, it's important in, in our organic gardening sort of systems that we include nitrogen-fixing legumes to, to, to keep the, the soil fertility up and the nutrient levels up in the soil. Um, I mean, obviously, if you don't dig, you can't, you can't dig the green manures in, so you'd have to choose green manures that perhaps uh, are killed off by frost over winter um, or, uh, or sort of naturally die down and then you leave them as a mulch on, on top of the surface, which can make um, sowing quite difficult in the following year or in the, uh, after, their, after the mulching with them. Um, but certainly for planting into um, you know, transplants and stuff, that, that, that should be perfectly possible. So yes, I, I do think there is a, a, a room both for, for leguminous green manures and, and other types of green manures as well. That's great, thanks Margie. Anyone else like to add to that at all? I mean, just to say, um, I'm from the Vegan Organic Network and uh, we're very strong advocates of the use of nitrogen fixing green manures as a sort of an essential source of bringing nitrogen from the atmosphere into sort of the realms of plants and as a key sort of way to close the system in terms of fertility. Um, obviously, as Margie mentions, that often inver involves inverting those green manures the following spring to sort of gain the benefit of that nitrogen fixation. But yeah, we're big fans of uh, clover, we're big fans of use of wood chip compost as well. Great. Uh, anything else? Or shall we move on? We'll move on. Okay, so next question is uh, Jonathan in Littlebrook says perennial food crops are great at minimising effort for the gardener. Are they also beneficial for the environment and do they have a future for feeding humans on a larger scale? Would anyone like to take up that question? 
I'm happy to take take that one. Um, just to say that I, uh, I I work with a collective of other farmers. We've got a small holding of two hectares, and we have a commercial forest garden. And in time, the commercial forest garden is sort of like the food system that has the sort of produces the highest calorific output per hectare and also it can grow on sort of more marginal land the problem from a sort of commercial perspective is that it takes time to grow so you don't get your yield immediately so it's a long-term project but i think in terms of the sort of fundamental question are perennial systems essential to feeding populations the answer is yes because especially because we can grow on more marginal land but that's not to say that annual crops don't have a, a an important role and people like to eat annual crops as well yeah would anyone else like to add to that yeah, I think in, in a gardening context, uh, uh, perennial crops are, are, are really important. Um, I mean, particularly the, the fruit trees and, and uh, the sort of um, the, the soft fruit bushes. Uh, I mean, they're really beneficial to increase biodiversity, uh, not only sort of plant species biodiversity, but also biodiversity of the sort of the wildlife that, that, that lives within it. So, uh, and of course, being perennial, you don't sort of disturb the soil too much, so you will increase soil biodiversity with them as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I do think the more the more perennial crops, the more, I, I'm, I'm particularly, and there are lots of benefits of growing, particularly, I think, the fruit. Um, you know, if you buy fruit in the UK, most of the fruit is still imported with long food miles, so it's, it's a really good way of, of, of you know, eat, eating. Uh, more sustainable um, fruit and bed of fruit as well. I'd say also that um, they do take a lot less work, you know, like raspberries are a great example. And being something which will deeper roots, you can get access to minerals that perhaps uh, more surface plants struggle to get. So instead of having to say use comfrey and chop and drop, mm. these roots will get down and get these minerals that you couldn't perhaps otherwise get without doing that, that method. So lots and lots of advantages. That's great, thank you. Do you know what? This year was the first year I was introduced to perennial broccoli. <laughs> How fabulous. <laughs> it's now going to be on my gland forevermore. Um, I'd just like to revert back to us discussing green manure because we've had a question from Mags in the chat. And she says, she don't, I don't know what green manure is. Uh, compost everything is this green manure. Perhaps could somebody explain to the uh, listeners what green manure actually yeah. is? So, yeah, so I can, I can do that. The, the, so a green manure is it's a plant that you grow for the benefit of the soil, basically. So you would normally grow it as part of the rotation in, in, your, in your veg plot or at times when the soil otherwise would be bare. So lots of people grow what they sometimes then refer to as winter cover crops. That's what often the, what they are called on a sort of an agricultural scale. Um, and you can either, and, and they have multiple benefits um, for, for doing them. If you grow a green manure over winter, they can help to mop up residual nitrogen that's in the soil, stopping it being leached, basically. Uh, and if, that, if it's a leguminous green manure, they, they can fix nitrogen. They don't tend to fix very much over winter but if you grow a spring green manure then then you can fix quite a lot of nitrogen and then you basically incorporate them straight to the soil so you don't compost them first generally um, and, and, and by incorporating fresh organic matter particularly a leguminous crop which also contains a lot of nitrogen you really give a, 
a big boost of, of energy, carbon, and nutrients to the microorganisms. So a green manure is really good to combine with a compost um, where the, the compost is, is, is provides more of a sort of a, a slow release boost, I would say. Um, whereas a green manure is really good for stimulating the soil in the spring. Uh, I mean, some people would grow a green manure um, and perhaps harvest the green manure, even dry it and then transfer it somewhere else. Particularly if you grow in a polytunnel or a glass house, you can grow the green manure outside, harvest it and then transfer the green matter in, in, into the, to the glass house or, or, or greenhouse. That's but it's great that you grow for the benefit of the soil. I was just going to add to Margie's um, that the Cotswold Seed Company have produced an amazing resource on every green manure that grows well in the UK. It's called Sort Out Your Soil. It was actually written by um, some people from Garden Organic alongside the guy, but it's definitely the best resource and it's free as well. So if you go onto Cotswold Seed's website and look for Sort Out Your Soil, you can have the complete lowdown on every green manure. That's excellent. Thank you so much. Um, so moving on to the next question, it's a question about peat, and this is so important, isn't it, um, for gardeners at the moment, there's lots of discussion around it, and peat has been used for so long in gardening, and it seems as though, you know, we're being told to limit peat, um, but there isn't a lot of peat-free compost available. So the question is, why shouldn't we use peat, and why is it so hard to find, why is it expensive? Um, and also in the Q&A here um, in this session, Dennis has written, in terms of peat-free alternatives, which have you found work miracles? So, um, yeah, Margie, would you like to take this up? Yeah, yeah this is, this is why my, should we limit peat, first peat of all? Peat alternatives is my hobby also. I'm ha quite happy to, to, to answer this. Well, basically, the, the UK government has set a target that we should stop the use of peat in horticulture and actually the target was to eliminate it this year 2020 in in the retail sector 2030 in the professional sector and and we are of course nowhere near that uh, unfortunately uh, the reason why it's in, why we have decided to to uh, not uh, use peat in horticulture is that it's from a from a sort of carbon emission point of view, it's really important that we keep the peat bogs intact. I mean, basically a, a peat bog is a, is a real good store of carbon. Um, and whilst it's in the bog, the carbon remains intact. But as soon as you drain the bog or put the, or dig the peat up, then you put that carbon into circulation and that will then eventually add to the sort of the greenhouse gas. So it's a, it's a it's basically can be regarded a bit like a fossil fuel. It's, it's best sitting where it is and, and, and not being used. Um, so, uh, and, and then there are of course lots of other reasons as well. We used to discuss a lot around sort of the, 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 the loss of biodiversity through the destruction of, of, of peat bogs. Um, I mean, that, that, that would say is, there is much more done and peat bogs are, are now often there's quite good restoration plans. So for me, the big reason why we need to stop using peat is, is that it is sort of very wasteful to use a non-renewable resource in this way, basically. Okay, so that's great. That's why we shouldn't use it and a, and a view on that. But um, there isn't much of it available, you know, 
you mean of peat alternatives? Of, of peat alternatives, and also those that are there are quite expensive. So how do we kind yeah. of... Well, of course, the, the search for peat alternatives has been going on for the last... Well, I've been involved with it for almost 30 years now, testing different peat alternatives, and they, they tend to sort of come and go. I think in the last few years, we have seen a, a large increase in the number of really good peat alternatives available on, on the... On the uh, on the retail market, and and I would say most of them today are usually based on on um, wood fibre or bark uh, that has been formulated with sometimes with a bit of green compost or green waste compost from the sort of local authority composting facilities, uh, and and often also with the coconut fibre, and you can you can of course argue whether coconut fiber is is a sensible replacement for peat in, in, in this country that's a sort of a different ethical issue. What is important over the last few years there has been a really good initiative going on in the UK where the growing media manufacturers have basically tried to work out what would be responsibly sourced and manufactured growing media and that scheme is, is due to come on board or come online Will be available on use next year and that will be will enable us to sort of look at the various sustainability issues with with the different growing media ingredients and see whether it's whether you think it's best to use um you know coir or or or, or, or um or, or wood fiber for example but there are that i would say that there are you know definitely more available than there have been and i would definitely say that the ones that are available today that they do perform very well um and they, they, you know the, the wood-based ones um and, and i don't know if we should mention particular brands here but but you can look in any sort of the catalog to see what, uh, which ones they are but there are definitely some that perform really really well to, uh, on a gardening base. Thank you I actually spoke to somebody who runs a, a nursery who sell peat and peat alternative uh, compost and I said you know why do you only have one brand here available um, and he said it's purely supply and demand and I said but if you only had peat free would people not just buy the peat free? And uh, he said it doesn't work like that. And uh, I found that a very interesting yeah. discussion. Well, yeah, one, <laughs> one big, in my view, mistake that the industry has made in the recent years, that we have we've been through a few years where they didn't actually want to, even on the peat-free materials, they didn't want to put that they were peat-free. So it's actually quite, it's very difficult for the consumer to go out and try to, to actually identify which materials contain peat and, and which don't, because it often doesn't say. I think that's been changed again, and the ones that are on the market now and, and will be next year, they, they normally more declare what that they are peat free and, and what they contain instead basically. The buyer has to know what they're purchasing it needs to be clear on the label and especially anyone who's new to gardening you know it's very easy for us to to shout about you know oh don't use peat you know peat's really bad but if it's not um, readily available and if it's not very obvious sometimes people don't pick up on that and I think yeah. that um, retailers I, I, really do have a responsibility to yeah. You know, I totally agree. I think it's really important. And I think there are a lot of, of consumers who really do want to know that they are not buying peat. So, so I, I, I do think it was a mistake not, not, not to say that. I and mean, the argument was that 
that consumers want a, a growing media that performs well. And that's, that's all that matters. You know, it doesn't matter what it contains, whether it's peat or something else. But I don't think that's right. I, I, I do think a lot of people are, are much more aware of, of what they buy and they want to buy the right thing. So it's, it's really important that, that uh, it's my understanding that in, in 2019, approximately i think it was almost 50 percent of the growing media sold in in the retail sector work was peat free um so it's definitely going up but it, but remember in 2020 it was meant to be zero so we have a long way to go before we have eliminated it another 50 percent would anyone yeah. else like to add to that at all nope we're good okay that's excellent thank you so much um, okay, so the next question is from Alison Holmes and uh, her question, she says, this question occurred to me whilst involved in the session on a low carbon diet. How can we incorporate more interesting plants and foods into our own growing plots and what can we grow to substitute and reduce reliance on meat-based nutrition? Who would like to take this one up? <laughs> 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 Anyone? Tony, your microphone is off at the moment, I'm afraid. We can't hear you. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, um, I think we've, we've ended up with a very limited range in what we tend to eat on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, we're very wheat-based in this country. Other countries are very rice-based. But there are so many things you can eat out there. Um, I've, for instance, eaten tulip uh, tulips, and they can have a taste that ranges from... <gasps> really hot to a nice mild sweet flavor um, you can eat nasturtiums um, a whole range of things that we we just don't eat anymore because it's become out of fashion i don't know in the old days how much um how much of a garden that was a flower garden was actually used in in coloring uses as well as just looking pretty because there are so many different things you can eat um that are beautiful as well so i think it's down to just making that connection between what we do eat and what we can eat and thinking well let's just broaden our horizons um flowers for instance from um courgettes etc they can be fried deep fried in batter uh there's just a whole range it's just a question of our imagination i think is being limited by the advertising we see on television every day mm -hmm. yeah. I, I totally agree sorry sorry um Margie, carry on yeah there are also a lot of of um uh, sort of non-meat proteins, protein crops you could be growing. Um, and I know at, uh, at Garden Organic, we used to trial with our members, and this has been ongoing for the last, again, for, for very many years, growing your, your own protein crops. Um, and, and, and I think recently that there are new varieties of lentils that can be grown in the UK quite successfully. Edible lupins have, have been introduced that can be grown in the garden. We've tried growing varieties of, of field beans that are also edible for humans and, and how you can get a good crop from those. Soya beans is another one that uh, uh, a lot of people have, 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 have a go with. I mean, they don't tend to be massively yielding, but they definitely yield better than, than, than they used to because they are varieties that have now sort of been selected for, for, for the climates. Um, so I think it's definitely worth having a go with some of the... the no, the homegrown protein yeah. crops. Anything yeah. that I would add is that we can quite easily grow about 30 different, it's more than 30, but quite easily grow 30 sort of high yielding vegetables. And one of the, 
easiest ways is to have an allotment to sort of access that kind of level or if you're if you're not in a situation to access a box scheme as well you know because growers for particularly organic box schemes tend to be masters of trying to get this sort of the, the holy grail of successional sowing and year-round supply of vegetables so you know I think you know if, if we look at crops that you don't harvest in one hit so if we think about cauliflower you harvest that once but if we go for something like purple sprouting broccoli or kale we harvest it over time so looking towards the crops that basically extend the harvest all the time and very much the box scheme uh, operators are the masters of that yeah definitely and actually there's quite a lot um there's more market farms thankfully starting to open up across the uk and, and you can access those and their veg box schemes and they're doing lots of kind of salad bags that kind of thing i love um tony what you said about kind of being a bit more creative and imaginative about what you grow you know we are led to believe that we can only grow some of the veg that we can buy in the supermarket and obviously some of that veg is actually um shipped in from overseas anyway but actually in the uk there is so much that we can grow so much more that you can than you can buy in a supermarket or in a plastic bag or you know in a container you know things like uh, quinoa we can grow and, am and amaranth which is an amazingly beautiful um flower but you can use it like porridge it's incredible you know there's and, and if you only have a small space, sort of like intercropping. So yes, you, you might have your um, wonderful ornamental plants. Some of those are edible, but why not put some kale in between and you know some marigolds and things, other edible flowers and edible plants as well. It, it brings so much interest and um, biodiversity into a garden that it's not just good for you know for you for for, for eating and, and feeding yourself and and being vegan as well, but and replacing meat. But it, it also does wonders for the environment as well. So it's kind of like, you know, it's like a whole holistic approach to it. Could I just add um, a thought that occurred to me that there's sort of encyclopedic sources on uh, sort of edible plants that you can grow in the UK. So the obvious sources of that information is plants for a future database. Some of the stuff is marginal, um, um, it's worth saying. And the other one is Martin Crawford's work around forest gardening. He really has catalogued everything you can grow in the UK uh, that's edible. So if you really want this like almost like hunter-gatherer type foraging diet, then that is the place to start. That's brilliant. Thank you. So yeah. Much. Could I add a couple of things as well? That um, some of the stuff that you can forage, quite frankly, yes, you can eat it, but you probably wouldn't want to. But there are a lot of stuff out there which is actually very tasty. And you, you've got to wonder that perhaps these things that are out in the wild have nutritional benefits for us, that our modern um, food that's been bred in certain directions for storability, etc., they contain nutrients which aren't in our modern foods. Um, Himalayan balsam for instance uh, I've eaten seeds from that and they taste like a, a hazelnut and very tasty they are so nettles obviously um, I've introduced people to nettles they go nettles you know I say well think about this way you're getting your own back on them if you're eating them <laughs> and generally well I haven't found anyone yet who hasn't said actually they're really nice so a good natural food that's probably got things in there that we don't have in our, our diet and can be foraged mushrooms as well um Chicken of the Woods is one of my all-time favourite mushrooms, well, my all-time favourite mushroom. Um, obviously, you've got to be very careful when you're foraging, you've really got to know what you're doing. But the tastes out there can be incredibly strong, incredibly good, um, and you've gone out and found something yourself, which is, is brilliant. You don't have to rely on just what you grow in your back garden or on your window shelf. Get out there and have a look around. Yeah, 
Yeah, don't believe that everything in the supermarket is all that you can eat, that is for sure. <laughs> okay, so we'll move on to the next question then. Um, I have an allotment and struggle beyond traditional salad items such as tomatoes, broad beans and peas. Information on growing winter crops is based on turnips, cabbage and plants which may need warmth in a greenhouse. Then where can we look to get interesting ways to make them into meals? So I think the question is, um, what can we grow perhaps over winter time um, and kind of expanding the growing throughout the year and where can um, good information come from to make those into meals? Who would like to take that one? I'm, I'm, I'm happy to give my own book, uh, book a little plug. Um, but the book that I co-wrote with Ian Talhurst, which is called Growing Green Organic Techniques for a Sustainable Future, basically that's catalogued all, I mentioned the sort of box scheme vegetables that catalogues all those things and particular things that will grow in winter. G generally speaking, we tend to grow stuff over winter. We actually still grow it in the main growing season. We just harvest it over winter. Um, but there are some things that would grow this sort of time of year. I think Margie was going to have some thoughts on that, didn't you? Well, there are, there are definitely some things that you can plant this time of the year. Uh, they won't necessarily yield now, of course, uh, so it depends on what you mean by, by growing it over winter. But at this time of the year, it's the time to, you know, to start sowing the, the broad beans, um, garlic and overwintering onion. Um, I mean, it depends slightly on where you are in the country, but I, I think certainly in the southern sort of part of the of the UK, um, you know, up until mid-November, you can normally normally sow those crops. And then I think there's also lots of really interesting winter salads, uh, which I believe it's not too late to sow them now and still have them sort of growing over winter. They are normally best if you can start them under some sort of cover, um, so you've either got a, a glass house or some sort of yeah, protected cover over them, um, and and they really add that I agree to something sort of green over winter as well. I think many of the winter salads are really interesting and, and tasty. Um, yeah, and on our small holding in our polytunnel at the moment, we have uh, mizuna, we have uh, red chard, we have claytonia, which is also uh, winter parsley, parsley, and then various mustards. And those, all those things combined make the just most beautiful salad bags at a time of year where you can get a bit unindated with uh, brassicas, really, let's face it. So yeah. it just gives everything a bit of a lift. And they're so nice. They're quite pungent. But they're, as long as you don't overdo the mustard, you've got to be careful with mustard because it's, it's, it's really attractive in terms of colour, but it literally can take your mouth out. So it's like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's knowing how to combine. And I think, you know, yeah, it's, they're, they're great things. But we have just to, to be aware that we actually sowed those in late, late August for, yeah. for our sort of our box schemes. Yeah. Okay. Would anyone like to add to that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one thing that you can do is, is kind of reuse stuff. Now, I, I had an old freezer that's the, the trays had died, the whole freezer died. So I took out the trays and I thought, hang on, these are nice clear plastic why not use them somewhere you know even if it's only for a season before the sun degrades it and i can put them over my chives and keep my chives going through the winter a fair bit longer mm. just making a mini greenhouse out of this whole freezer part um also things like broad beans you can eat the tender uh, tips of broad beans as a, as a green so <clears throat> there's a few, few other extra things you can do like that to extend your season yeah rather than thinking, oh, I must plant this for that period. 
And, and just, just to add to Tony's point, it's made me think of freezers. You can use old freezers uh, for storing root crops and also for storing apples as well so um you know traditionally apples were stored for i mean it might be that they're not as crisp as you would get in the shops but they're still perfectly edible and they can you know there's quite a few storage items like squash will be another example that will possibly store till the following april if you grow enough of them it gives you a really good opportunity to look at recycling and, you know, goods that you would perhaps think about throwing away, reuse that in the garden for storing and um, for growing. I mean, that's, that's essential, isn't it? Especially when it, you know, comes to looking after the planet too. Another thing I'd love to add is something that I grow all winter is microgreens. I grow them all year. I know that they're not substantial enough to feed you for the whole year, but they're a great addition to dishes that you are cooking and really good uh, high nutritional value as well. And they're really easy to grow, grow them on a windowsill or in a little cold frame or anything. They just, they, they'll grow really easy. So microgreens definitely add that to the list. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think that they are wonderful. Pea shoots and things like that are really good. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Okay, so we'll move on to the next question. This is um, from Jane um, in Wigan. She said, I have read that the plants in some nurseries and DIY stores that carry the RHS plants pollinators label are in fact covered in pesticides. How can we ensure that when we buy plants that they are not damaging the very creatures that they are advertising that they protect? And what criteria does the RHS basis labeling on? Margie. Um, well, I, I, I have heard that as well, that some of the plants carrying the pollinator, uh, good for pollinators uh, label, have been grown particularly with the neonicotinoids, um, which is not, no, we shouldn't be, shouldn't really be using. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, how, how, how true that is or to what extent that happens. I think that the criteria for what makes a good pollinator is, is basically based on the sort of the features of the of the plant and and which plant species are known to attract pollinators basically so it's not necessarily to do with how, how the plants have been grown up but i think that the, the two obviously hangs together and it is important that we make sure that when we buy um, plants or, or, or seeds that they have produced in, in a sustainable and, and, and ethical way. Uh, particularly if we buy plants, we don't want them to be, have, been, have been grown in peat, for example, uh, or, or using neonicotinoids. But I think the, the label of what makes a good pollinator is, is basically around the plants which are known to attract the beneficial insects and pollinators. Yeah, does anyone like to add to that? Yeah, I, I would just say, I mean, the consideration of actually just growing plants from seed yourself, that, that might be one obvious way um, of, of, of being around that situation. But also, you know, looking at the possibility of buying by mail order, peat-free organic plants, you know, organic is still the, you know, the standard really to tell you that that has been grown without, you know, these damaging pesticides. Just say some um, pesticides are allowed under the organic standards, but they're not all not all um, organic producers and particularly veganic choose, uh, producers choose to use them so maybe it's it's a question of provenance and actually questioning these things from the um the, the nursery that you buy from but yeah the the possibility of buying if if, if you have to buy the plants and, and i realize that not everybody's got propagation facilities then you 
you discuss the provenance with the nursery because that's what drives demand as well you know asking these questions absolutely yeah I totally agree I think that's a really good suggestion absolutely it could be a good idea maybe to speak to some local gardeners to see if there's someone who enjoys propagating plants you know bring you becoming like a, a miniature nursery where as you perhaps are growing say main crop and you can do some swaps between you so make it a, a more social event a cheaper event and um something where everyone benefits really yeah absolutely like community gardening is so important yeah, isn't it and actually that's what you were saying before about having an, an allotment as well you know if you can get your hands on an allotment it gives you more space and you meet people and you can share produce and seeds and um, and and learn so yeah community is really important when it comes to, to food and growing um okay so next question is um is it possible to create a closed loop veganic vegetable garden and i'll give that one to you jenny thank you <laughs> so so the answer is uh, yes um and in fact a lot of the, our commercial veganic growers across the world are essentially from closed systems so the, 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 um, the key two techniques really would be, I'm talking about annual crops here, um, yeah, um, it, it would it, be um, the use of growing green manures, which we've discussed already, and also perhaps some element of wood chip as well. Um, wood chip's very interesting in that um, initially we always thought we had to compost it, but what we've learned is providing that the diameter of the wood is, is below seven centimetres, if it goes through a chipper, that that is that is an amendment that can go onto soil. We don't tend to put it directly onto bare soil because um, that could potentially cause nitrogen lockup. So we we can say that a green manure that's high in nitrogen, like clover, for example, combined uh, that's already growing, and then we put the wood chip on top of that. It's almost like the perfect um, amendment for soil. And you know, there's there's been uh, growers like Ian Tolhurst in Reading sort of like um, managing to get comparable yields to conventional this is vegetable growing so it's really interesting that you basically grow the wood chip on your holding to close the system you might say well you're buying buying the seed for the clover and i think it would be very it's possible perhaps if you're down south to grow your own clover seed i think one of the problems i'm, I'm based in the northwest near liverpool is that it's just a bit too damp for your own seed saving up here so it depends on exactly where you are in the country but um, it's worth saying with, um, you know, the conventional wisdom is, is that horse manure or, or cow manure is, you know, is, is the perfect organic amendment. And, you know, no one's denying that those can grow crops from. But it, you have to ask the question about why is that, that sort of poo not going back onto the fields and that kind of thing. So to close the system veganically is actually easier than to bring in sort of like mixed farming. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I, I just wondered, I just like to throw in a question there myself. Um, I know some of us here are veganic gardeners and I wondered if um, perhaps Tony, Jenny, if you could um, describe to the participants here what veganic gardening actually is, uh, you know, and how that differs from organic gardening. Tony, do you want that? Uh, yeah, well, I'll start. I'm sure you'll have more to, to add. I mean, the main difference is that we, we don't take any inputs that have come from uh, animals at all. It could be blood, bone, fish meal, uh, manure, etc. Because of obviously the, we, we feel that 
we don't want to be part of that cruelty. If, if something is produced, um, say, on a farm, then they have to get rid of the manure they have to use it in some way. If they sell it, they make more money uh, for their system, for the, the growing of the animals. So we don't want to be part of that. Um, so we, we like to grow. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not just about, you know, not wanting to be part of that cruelty, but it's also by growing veganically, it's something you can do yourself. You don't have to have an animal that is then slaughtered or pick up animal manure. So you don't have to have an animal to grow veganically. You can grow veganically as is because you don't need to have that space to grow an animal or whatever, a large area, a place to keep it, etc. So the, the people who grow veganically for a, a variety of reasons, uh, personally, it's, I just don't want to be part of that. Um, so yeah, yeah, Jenny, maybe. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's worth saying that green manures are more than the sum of their parts, really. <clears throat> so um, if we were using um, livestock manures, it's always just a top-down addressing to the soil, whereas actually green manures, the roots grow in the soil, they create incredible structure. So there's a real benefit. And even in organic systems that use livestock, clover is still the number one input for nitrogen because, you know, basically all fertility originates in plants. Animals can concentrate that fertility in their bodies, but they don't have the ability to create it. So particularly if we look towards perennial systems and carbon sinks as well, that, that you know, this, this, this idea of that we grow our own fertility on the holding is a really integral part of that. That's great. Thank you so much. So that's going to lead me on to the all-important question that everyone asks. Everyone wants to know this question. We've had a few comments on this already. How can we take an ethical approach to pests in the garden? And that's slugs in particular. So I'm going to start off with Tony. <laughs> Your microphone's off, Tony. Thank, Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was coughing a bit, so I was trying to be. <laughs> so yeah, I, I live in South Wales, and we have more than a passing association with slugs. I mean, uh, at night you you go in, you close your door, and you can hear this charge as they come rushing towards your, your garden. <laughs> um, I've got a hugel culture bed. I, I do think hugel culture beds are uh, very beneficial, but I've picked a hundred slugs off this. Bed, which is probably about a quarter the size of a standard allotment, I would think, in one night. So they, they are real. They are a real problem. Um, one way I'm working on this, and I I was basically digging a moat around the hugel culture bed, but unfortunately the digger I had broke down. Uh, it never worked again. So that was a bit of a pain. But even with three sides forming a moat, it massively reduced the number of slugs that went onto onto the soil. So if you've got a, a gap big enough that a slug won't cross it and you each night take off the slugs you can get a, a very slug reduced or slug free area which is brilliant uh, if you've got a moat like that as well create a habitat that's good for frogs I mean I, I don't want anything to harm anything but it is part of nature so if there's an area where a frog would like to habitat that will also help keep uh, down slugs etc I've had slugs and um, uh, various other creatures um, frogs and other creatures on the hugel culture where I've gone out there picking at night and doing my work for me which is is great uh, but definitely I would say moats I know people say about copper strips and also I've heard people say this just really doesn't work um, there may be a way using a copper aluminium strip which is connected which would literally form a small battery which give a little and make the slug hopefully run away um, another issue uh, I've had is I grow monkey puzzle trees and I've, I've grown about 
seven, eight, nine thousand of them. I mean, I've planted four thousand seeds this year. Uh, but everything loves them: squirrels, moles, voles, you name it. I walked into my greenhouse one day and I found something like two hundred trees tiny little trees about yay high only about seven eight centimeters and the voles had dug underneath gone past some bricks were underneath and I swear I heard little timber sounds as this poor little tree got nibbled at the bottom like that <laughs> I came to find 200 of these so I now grow them and this will sound strange and very perhaps unenvironmentally friendly I build a structure out of bricks and glass blocks and this is high enough that they can't climb over the top um, I use recycled bricks, I use recycled glass blocks, so I don't feel bad about it. But that means I can grow a thousand monkey puzzle trees in that space to get to a stage where they can't attack them anymore. So I think the barrier method is the long-term solution. I think when you've got a predator-prey balance, obviously at the start, um, the excuse the fingers I've been working. <laughs> so you've got the predator to prey balance. Um, I, I really do the stuff. I don't just talk about it. Uh, <laughs> and that's been scrubbed already. Anyway, um, so obviously your your prey comes up first of all, and that may attack all your plants, and you may lose all your runner beans, etc. And then the predators come up, but it may be a little bit late for your plants. So grow before, physically protect, and I think those are the answers really. So. It's about prevention a great deal, isn't it, when it comes to kind of, um, you know, trying to control pests. And I think partly there is an element as a, an ethical gardener that you do have to accept that you will lose some crops sometimes. And, you know, that's actually going to be okay, you know, because there are other things that will grow and you'll have successes in different years and there's different pests each year. And... I think you have to accept that we all share the planet together and you know you have essentially provided some food or a home for another living species and whilst it can be really upsetting to lose crops and I'm talking really on an allotment basis not on a on a you know a big land basis of course that's different um, you, 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 you kind of have to accept that that might happen sometimes and, and kind of be okay with that you know it's okay. So, um, yeah, Jane, would you like to add? Yeah, I just wanted to add that people are often in a hurry to plant stuff out too early. So one of my advice would be um, to grow transplants and perhaps not plant till the first week of June, which sounds, so you'd be sort of sowing them from sort of mid-April onwards to plant the first week of June. That sounds really super late. But basically, I've done all the experiments of trying early and that everything always catches up anyway. So if you plant stuff <laughs> you out at the best possible Time, that helps the other thing with slugs is that if you build up a beetle population there's not really many things that like to eat adult slugs you can imagine slugs are horrible but there's lots of things that like to eat slugs eggs so beetles have been a classic example and also just in the habit of regular hoeing if you hoe your um your crop uh, regularly so that there's not masses of weeds and things this is obviously if you're not doing a, a no dig system but that that also is again slugs don't like to travel over sort of dry abrasive substances but so the the act of regular hoeing 
um, can be really sort of integral to 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 growing. So, so for example, we've never on our five acres never removed a slug, you know, because we either do like Tony says, we remove them, you know, and they and they and they're easy to find because they like to go, they congregate in the same kind of places. Or, you know, we, we, we try and have the best husbandry and stuff that grows quickly, you know, can grow away from pests. You know, we don't really tend to have any major pest problems. We also use barrier nets. So if we didn't use nets, um, basically the hares would take everything out, the pigeons or the butterflies. So that's that's the, the other thing for, for giant nets. I'm a big fan of giant nets. Yeah, that's great, thank you. I think, you know, looking at encouraging, you know, or creating a really biodiverse environment is the best way in controlling all pests, really, because you just find that kind of nature um, deals with it. I love it when you see actually aphids on um, some on a plant and if you leave the aphids literally the next day you'll find ladybirds there they come you know they come they eat they eat the aphids and and you're providing the ladybird with you know an environment and food as well so um creating that kind of like biodiverse environment is is really important for trying to control pests and i know it can be really frustrating and slugs especially the gardener's nemesis for sure but <laughs> they have their place in the garden as well. Um, shall we move on to the next question? Um, okay, this one's from Ruth, and Ruth said, does a lawn support more species if you never mow it, or should you mow a few times a year to encourage wildflowers? Um, Marvie, would you like to take that? Yes, I can, I can have, a, have a go at that. Well, it depends a lot on what the lawn, what sort of soil the lawn is grown on. I mean, yes, generally, if you allow the, the wildflowers in the lawn to set seeds, then you will, then they will have a, a greater uh, chance of surviving. So not mowing it so often, letting it, it's, it's so seed. But normally, if, you are, if you're trying to really create a sort of a wildflower meadow, then normally you would start with by even removing some of the topsoil to reduce the nutrient levels because if the nutrient levels in the soil are high then the grass is generally going to outcompete the wildflowers basically so if you if you so, so so to some extent you do you need to mow and remove the mowings but if you are mowing at the stage where the so make sure that the wildflowers have had the chance to set seeds and leave the mowings on on top to make sure that the seeds can disperse them and, and, and fall back into onto the soil. Um, but but yes, leaving it. I don't know about leaving it and never mow it. That's the question says because I think then uh, um, you know if the soil is too fertile, then probably the grass would would outcompete the wildflowers anyway. Um, but generally, you need to, to to mow it once or twice to 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 um, uh, and then remove some of the mowings to reduce the fertility. There, there's another technique for reducing fertility as well, and that's introducing parasitic uh, flowers. So yellow rattle is an example yeah. of that, and that's a commonly used technique in environmental conservation because basically. Um, if, if there's fertility, basically, like like, like Margie said, that the grass, that rank grasses will come, so will docks, uh, so will brambles, so will thistles. Um, it's, it's worth saying that there's a benefit to thistles, particularly like this year, my garden looked like, I mean, my neighbours are horrified, but it was utterly covered in butterflies. So that's that's how I justify it to myself. 
um, and also I don't have the time to sort it out with the with the, the small holding as well. But but you know it, it depends where you want to go. If you want rare wild flowers, then you you need to have some sort of regime of mowing. And I would say a, an introduction of yellow rattle. I would also say have a look online on YouTube how to do that. It's not an easy art. Um, um, I, I won't describe it here, but you know it's you know it, it's something to consider. Yeah. That's a really good tip, thank you. I'm, I have a friend who lives in Norwich City and he hadn't mowed his lawn for a whole summer um, and then he left it for the next year and that following year he had a lawn absolutely full of bee orchids. In the inner city full, absolutely can't tell you how stunning it was. So, you know, you can be surprised with some beautiful plants if you do um not mow but you would have to mow occasionally for sure um okay so the next question i'm going to um move on to something um to do with consumerism again it's a question, again, it's a question. which is um is where you buy from as important as what you choose to buy as well who would like to take that one well, I, I could. We've sort of already touched on 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 this um, on this to some extent already about you know, thinking carefully about where you source your your plants and and, and seeds from, uh, and and there are there are lots of different aspects to think of sort of where where you buy it. Uh, I mean, we we know that if you look at the sort of the carbon footprint of gardening, a big a big. Um, sort of a part of the footprint is normally to do with the trips to the garden centre, the same as his trips to the to the shopping centres where, where we put for food. Um, so obviously buying from stuff nearby can, can or, un, un, or, or no, not creating trips to the garden centre. But I think it's also really important to support retailers or, or centres that really take great care and consideration to the sustainability of their of, of what they offer particularly not not only how they run their garden center but also on their offering so are they offering organically raised plants to suit the organic gardeners are they offering um, um, you know organic seeds for example and 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 are they sort of taking the steps to make it easy for somebody to be uh, an ethical or organic or vegan organic gardener basically making those so for example we talked about peat already are they are they stocking a good um, uh, or making available a, a good uh, a range of, of peat free products um, and and I even like to take uh, to look at those who've taken an even further step because what we are finding is that more and more garden centers are offering you know, the alternatives if you like as well but they still keep the the pesticides the the the, the roundup and and uh, uh, there as well um, and and to me it's also about the garden centers taking a real stand and actually not offering some products um, not offering plastic pots for example is what we've seen a lot of them are doing uh, not so offering plastic lawns for example which is you know is an, as a sort of disaster not offering uh, you know gas burners for patio heaters uh, or, or, and, uh, and also many of the pesticides, they're actually taking them off the shelf uh, to really show their, their sustainability sort of credentials. So I think there are, I mean, I would always 
shop from the organic gardening catalogue because I know that there's been you know, quite careful consideration to the products that are available through that. The plants where they are available have been, or seeds are from, from organic sources. So I, yeah. I, I do think it matters where you yeah. shop, yes. I, um, I think whilst, you know, retailers have a responsibility um, to only stock things that are good for the environment and, and, good, and good all round, also we have a responsibility to question what they're selling. And I think the more questions that we ask, the more they will be aware of what the consumer actually wants to buy, you know, you know what we're thinking, what the future holds. And I think it's really important that when we go anywhere, we ask questions, you know, has it been grown in peak? Has it had pesticides? Why are you selling those plastic pots? How come you've still got gas burners? You know, just asking the questions and, and being quite vocal about it. And I think we have a responsibility as consumers to do that as well. So it comes from both ways. Um, okay, so I think we've got time for another question, which will probably take us uh, to the full hour. It's important question and it's about composting of course it's important in any um, a good gardening practice so the question is it's claimed in there is no planet b that a poorly managed compost bin is roughly like having the worst kind of landfill site in your own back garden should we leave composting to the municipal experts rather than encouraging an army of well-intentioned but ineffective managers so let's start with Margie, but I think we may all have something to say about yeah. that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a real compost, sort of really avid composter, and I, and I think there's probably nothing better you can do than, than compost at home. So I would... I would definitely argue that it isn't about you know, the worst, we're not creating a landfill in our, in, in our back garden. I mean, you often hear this because um, it's a sort of, a, you assume that in a home compost bin, if it's too wet, you create uh, anaerobic conditions and that would, would release methane. But, but, if, but if, if you compost, you know, according to recommend, you know, guidelines and recommendations, that generally doesn't happen. And even if you should create a, a sort of a pocket within the compost bin that might be anaerobic for a time, before that methane actually leaves the bin, it's normally converted in, 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 into, you know, by the surrounding organic matter. So yes, take care. I mean, basically compost all the garden waste and all the compostable um, sort of kitchen or household waste as well. And, and, and really the reason why it's good is in terms of sort of closing that loop, we are, we are obviously cutting down on all the emissions that are related to the transportation of the waste, both to the municipal composting site and then you know, back in terms of nutrients and compost that we've purchased from somewhere. So really closing that loop is, is you know, is the, the, to me, the most sensible way, way of, of dealing with it. And then just make sure that the compost bin, you have got plenty of carbon and, and, and sort of dry materials in there so it doesn't go too wet, particularly if you have a small garden, perhaps during the, the winter time when you haven't got a lot of you know, grass uh, or, or a lot of garden waste, and it tends to be a lot of, of kitchen waste. 
you know, it, it make sure it doesn't go too too uh, wet that, at, at that time by mixing in more more cardboard, having a, a a little stock of some shredded wood or something that you can mix into it to keep it aerobic, basically. And and and, and if you're worried about it going anaerobic, then of course turn it. But but most most people these days, I, I guess, don't turn their compost. But even so, I wouldn't say you'll have a little landfill in your back garden. There we go. Jenny, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to add two tips, really, that have worked for me. And I mean, I compost several cubic metres of compost, uh, just so you're aware. But one is to have an air block underneath the heap. So we use pallets. Um, because what one of the reasons why moisture gets into compost heaps sometimes is it just soaking up ground moisture. So by having an air block under the compost, uh, this is one way. And the other one is to stop rainwater running into the compost. So having some form of lid, and we just we just have a hardboard lid so that the water sheds off. So essentially, our heap, the mo only moisture that ever goes into our heap is moisture that we've put in there, and we can control that by the sort of the golden rule of uh, two parts green to one parts brown. Uh, uh, there's other rule. Everyone's got a rule on composting. That that's the one that works for me. Um, but the the key is that you're not getting the rainwater shed or groundwater into your heap. That's yeah. what's making it go anaerobic. That's what's making it go smelly. And you're trying to have a mixture of green ingredients, nitrogen rich ingredients like vegetable peelings, like grass, to some sort of carbon element, which Margie's mentioned, which might be. And if 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 you're in a sort of small scale. Uh, situation like even screwed up cardboard and stuff like that that yeah. that would make up the brown element thank you tony anything to add to that yeah uh, one thing i would say is that when you do your own compost you know what's in there you if you send it i'll uh, get some from a municipal dump you don't know whether someone's sprayed roundup all over um stuff before they've taken it to compost so you you've got quality there uh, i mean there's also it's not just about um, growing stuff, but there's a possibility of anaerobic digesters, for instance. We don't do it much in this country for various reasons, but uh, by actually composting in an anaerobic digester, we can help solve our energy crisis, um, reduce our carbon footprint with that as well. So I think that's something that we need to look at a lot more in this country. So you get a good quality um, source of, of food for your plants and you generate um, a good amount of energy as well. Yeah. There's, 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 in, there's interesting um, projects taking out roadside verges for wildflowers but then sticking that through an anaerobic digester so there's some there's some interesting stuff going on around the country that's in Lincolnshire and Kent so yeah, um, I, yeah. I've been very I've been following it so yeah it is interesting I know that um, I think it was only last year there were quite a few people that, that did have problems with the compost that they had got from um, their um, uh, you know the minutes were experts that they bought bags and they actually had pesticides in them or there were problems in them and then they put them onto their allotment land or garden and it had it, it, it had been disastrous so you can't always rely on um you know buying something externally you know when you when you're making your own compost you know what you've put in it um, you know, and you, you feel, I think you feel a little bit safer perhaps as well when you, when you know what you're doing yourself. And I think with gardening, it's like a never ending education, isn't it? And you will always be learning. We're always, you know, learning new techniques and finding out new ways of doing things. Um, and there's so much resource out there. We've mentioned Garden Organic, we've mentioned uh, Veganic Organic Network as well as like Heritage Seed. There's so much out there that, and there's so many people who want to talk to you about gardening and help you make, you know, the right decisions and the right choices 
uh, going forward. So yeah, you know, there you go. I think we're we're done for an hour, haven't we, Anna? Yeah, yeah. So I, I just want to say thank you so much to Elmarie, Margie, Tony and Jenny for sharing all your wisdom and I wish it could go on longer. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for everyone for sending your questions in and for the 45 people that have joined us during this session. So thank you everyone and goodbye. Thank you everyone. Bye. Bye.